Hello, my name is Magnus, and I am from the Autism News Network. Today, today's a little today, today's podcast is a little different. Today, I have Dr. Dobson, Dr. Eric Dobson, and Dr. Gwinnett here today. We're gonna talk about MDMA slash ecstasy, or as a cool kid say nowadays, Molly. You know, but uh, yeah, let's see. Hey, Dr. Dobson, it's not every day that people talk about MDMA or Molly, you know, and autism all all together. You know, how did you get interested in the, the psychedelic drug study? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the first time I, I'd heard about, you know, psychedelics as being used for like a, a therapeutic reason was kind of early on uh, when I was an undergrad uh, up in Columbus, Ohio. I, one of my dorm mates had mentioned like an article they read, someone had taken like, you know, psilocybin mushrooms and had these like major personality changes. Um, so that kind of caught my ear and it was kind of scary. It was like, you know, what, what's going on? Like how can, you know, a chemical cause that intensive reaction in a person? Um, but reading more and like the further I got my, my medical studies, um, you know, a lot of the changes that can happen with psychedelic substances and we're getting more and more research to support this are, are actually like positive changes, people being more uh, open, gregarious, better, you know, interpersonal relationships. Uh, so I've always been an interest of mine. And, and I think over the past 10 years, there's been more and more studies about not just like those classic psychedelics, but also like ecstasy or MDMA. Um, I, I uh, run a, a journal club for some of the residents uh, at, at MUSC, and um, we're always looking for different areas uh, within psychedelic research to focus on. This was just a really interesting niche to me. Uh, so, um, and, and of course, uh, I think an interest to Dr. Gwinnett as well. We brought him on for one of our journal clubs a couple months ago, and that was kind of where we took a deep dive into this subject. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. And it was, uh, it's, it's a fun thing to say. I think it's the South Carolina Psychedelic Science Group. Yeah, you know, oh, man. that's right. I'm just so excited. We're actually like moving forward with different alternatives i would say you know to the classic medications i've been out for some time now you know yeah uh, yeah, yeah sorry oh i was just gonna say i think your sentiments you know shared by a lot of patients i see um you know maybe they don't necessarily have an interest in psychedelics specifically but there's a lot of folks that are like okay well there's therapy there's these medications you take every day but you know, some people therapy is not enough. And uh, for some people, they don't want to be on a medication every day. So I think, I think uh, that's a pretty broadly held sentiment you mentioned. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Dobson, what is your training background and where are you from? Where do you represent? Where's yeah, your so, hometown? <laughs> I, I, I'm a Buckeye. I, I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. And, oh. and what, yeah, yeah. Like uh, I, I think not unusual here in Charleston to have uh, uh, some of us Ohioans uh, you know, migrating south here, but um, went to Ohio State for undergrad. Uh, did did my four years of medical school back in Cincinnati, University of Cincinnati, um, and then I'm I'm in my third year of four training here uh, uh, as as a psychiatry resident at MUSC. Yeah, have you ever heard of a band called Flogging Molly? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah, <laughs> that's just, I always think of that when I hear of Molly. So, uh, Doctor Dobson. What is MDMA? As, so MDMA is a synthetic psychoactive compound. So, so it's made in a lab. Um, it's 
has both like stimulant qualities and also what I'd call like empathogenic qualities. So it can increase empathy um, and trust for, for oneself, for others. Um, it overlaps with what I think about as like classic psychedelics, like peyote, magic mushrooms, or psilocybin um, in a lot of ways. Um, and actually its structure is kind of a somewhere between mescaline, which is the active ingredient in peyote and uh, a stimulant like Adderall or amphetamine. Um, and, and so typically lasts about six hours, the acute effects. Um, and, and so you do get kind of these stimulating effects, increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, but also, um, kind of a, a, a change in how the brain is, is seeing the self and also seeing, uh, others. So it gives you some confidence, you know, I'll, I read the, uh, I was reading through the study that MDMA increases your, basically your confidence. Some people may use alcohol. Some, like I said, there's different alternatives in today's age. You know, we can only hope to explore what we can, you know? Yeah, I, I think confidence is definitely part of it, but it, maybe even a bigger part is trust. Um, and, and that's so important. Uh, you know, I mean, when you're interacting with anyone really, right, you want to be able to trust them. If you don't trust someone, you might be running the other direction, but Especially yeah. uh, working with a doctor or therapist, trust is just so, so important. Yeah, I hear you. Oh, man. What is MDMA usually famous for? Like, I know what it's famous for. It was, you know, it's, it was ecstasy before, you know, it, it just, the term has been changed in the Molly. It's a party, a rave. That's what it is. Most people, that's where the term comes from and the music and everything, you know, the younger generation kind of exploits the, the positive parts of the medications, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you bring up a really important point is, um, you know, when MDMA was first synthesized, this would have been like in the seventies, it was probably first used in therapeutic settings. So it wasn't illegal at that point. It was just a chemical. Um, and you know, there were, you know, a good number of therapists, psychiatrists across the country that were trying to somehow like integrate this, this powerful chemical into their clinical practice. Um, but yeah, then it kind of like escaped the lab, escaped the clinical situation. Um, you know, a lot of the effects of uh, MDMA uh, blend really nicely with what people, uh, you know, would like out of a night at the rave. So that, you know, they, they're going to want to stay up all night. They're going to want to have more energy. They're going to want to interact more closely with other people. Um, but a, a lot of bad came from that too. A lot of, uh, you know, using this drug, you know, with overheat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I read, like seizures. in the like in the fame one of my favorite movies, you know, Bad Boys. You know, that was one of the plots of the first one, Ecstasy. You know, and you just see them overheat and just die from just being overheated. You know. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's probably the most common thing. Like people passing out. Um, you imagine like a rave; it's kind of hot. You know, people are exhausted, but you're kind of missing your body's natural cues that. You know, maybe you should be sleeping right now. Um, and yeah, it can, it has definitely led to some bad outcomes in rare cases, even death. Yeah. No, yeah. I didn't realize that it was used, you know, decades ago in clinics, you know, before, as like you said, it escaped from the lab type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, uh, the, the guy who kind of popularized it, Alexander Shulgin, he, he probably made, upwards of a hundred different psychoactive compounds. Um, and, and again, you, I guess you can't really make illegal what doesn't exist yet. So, so, you know, these things kind of had like a grace period of maybe 10 years where 
they circulated. Uh, they were kind of like these uh, networks of different therapists and psychiatrists that would share this um, drug that was being used as a medication. And, and uh, it, it was kind of like the wild west. I mean, it was, it was being used, uh, uh, you know, not just by one or two therapists, but by, by a lot of them. Really interesting. Yeah. yeah that, that kind of built on um, earlier kind of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, uh, it, you know, the sixties, um, that was a hippies, like a hippie yeah. movement. Hi hippies, a hippie yeah. movement. We'll just we'll just call it as it is, you know. Right, right, and that was that was a good twenty years before ecstasy was big. Um, so this was kind of like a um, like a second wave of psychedelic assisted yeah. psychotherapy with with MDMA. Yeah, and I yeah. think this, this is getting into a, a really important point. We're probably going to touch on later is that you know that something originates in the lab in the clinics, then it kind of escapes from the lab, and then. 28 days later or whatever, you know, you've got people using doses that are maybe multiple of what is, you know, tried, you know, in research settings. And they're, they're using it, like you said, not reading their body's cues, not monitoring vital signs, not monitoring fluids. And then, you know, certainly things can go south from there. So the, the study we're going to talk about later, they're really paying a lot of attention to dosage, the administration, medical support, observation, you know, psychiatric observation, you know, so that's, I think, something really important to point out to the audience as we proceed on our discussion. Yes. Actually, my next question is, how is this drug made? You know, like the, the whole procedure of just trying to get it going, you know? Yeah, the, really good question. And, and uh, interestingly, the specific chemical that was used for this study, uh, this is the, let's see, I think it was 2018 Danforth study. Um probably was synthesized in 1985. So, you know, the, it, at a lab in Purdue, David Nichols was the guy who, who synthesized kind of this original batch of MDMA. Um, and it was probably a lot easier to synthesize before 1985, because after that it was schedule one, it was a controlled substance. Um, so there was this supply that was created. It was relatively stable, relatively pure. It was being used in a lot of phase one, like this study in phase two clinical trials. Um, and just recently this came up again because uh, for a different population, for folks with PTSD, MDMA uh, just completed a phase three, or it's kind of the last one before approval uh, clinical trial. And, and for that specific study, that uh, was a big one, um, the FDA required, uh, like any drug that's seeking approval, uh, that it be made with good manufacturing practices or GMP. Uh, so the the folks sponsoring the trial had to find a lab that uh, you know both was okay synthesizing a Schedule One drug legally could synthesize a Schedule One drug, which requires a special license, and then could do it up to the standards of the FDA. Um, and so it was like a years long search to find uh, you know a, a lab that would do this. They ultimately did find one. Um, at, at but that's all happening after this study. This one, I think, as best as I could tell, was from this batch that was way back from 1985. Oh, wow. So it's been some time now. So why do you, why, why are you doing a study? What, what are you looking to get out of it? You know, how can this help individuals with autism, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's the big question, right? Like, why do the study in the first place? Um, and I, I think what MDMA brings to psychiatry is really a few different things, but the 
biggest part of it is just increasing that trust and alliance that happens between a patient and a therapist. Um, and so especially when you're talking about something like social anxiety uh, in someone with autism, um, that can be a barrier that's kind of hard to overcome. It's, it can be hard to form that connection with, with a therapist. Um, I mean, the whole point that, you know, a, a person with social anxieties in treatment is to get over their anxiety about being around other people. Um, so, so this, this is kind of like a huge catalyst for, uh, building that trust rapidly and, and then kind of, kind of unlocking social skills and decreasing social anxiety from there. One of the problems with myself is we can't be around, uh, you know, people, we end up losing them as friends, you know, because of what we say, we just don't think before we say it. That's just me, but yeah, definitely. You know, the I just it's it's the anxiety that gets to me. Yeah, and I I would imagine you know part of that it leads to kind of less trust of other people, or maybe even less trust of yourself. Um, if you run into um, times where you're like, ah, oh, darn, I wish I wouldn't have said that. And, and people with social anxiety can be kind of like hypercritical of themselves. They can really get down on themselves too much. And that can kind of lead to lead to kind of an unhealthy place for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's so true. And Magnus, something, something I picked up like in our Autism News Network group, like this morning um, on our group meeting, we had legitimately 15 participants, you know? And yeah. They all are adults with autism um, and we're trying to make that a cohesive group. And sometimes it can be challenging when everyone in the room has significant anxiety and autism symptoms so that the default is that group is going to be pulled apart, you know, by the social deficits and the communication deficits. And, and as you mentioned, Magnus yourself, that the autism news network is a program, but, but more than that, it's a community, right? So we're actually trying to overcome the social anxiety and the social deficits every day and stick together. Yep. This is one of the good things, you know, uh, one of the many great things. So uh, Dr. Dobson, what are the risks with this, uh, with this drug? Just as, I know there are risks for anything in life, but what are the risks for this one? Yeah. Yeah. So, so MDMA is, I, I would say, a reasonably safe medication as best as we can tell from the trial so far in a very controlled environment. Um, but, but even in that environment, uh, like Dr. Gwinnett, I think mentioned earlier, there's a lot of monitoring that takes place. So it's a stimulant. It can increase heart rate, blood pressure, uh, body temperature, and those things were all monitored throughout the trial. Um, and this trial, I think it's kind of in the fine print there, but they excluded a lot of people with medical problems. They excluded folks with diabetes, glaucoma, high blood pressure, history of seizures, uh, liver disease, and then not just physical problems, but also um, either family history of psychiatric problems or personal history. So you know, they excluded folks with uh, uh, relatives with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, uh, folks with dissociative identity, eating disorders, um, suicidal thoughts. Uh, so this is a very carefully selected sample in this study. Um, and then when we're talking about, you know, outside of this clinical setting, all those risks are just amplified. You mentioned earlier this, this, this uh, you know, common uh, kind of stereotype of people taking ecstasy at raves. Uh, it's a hot place. Hyperthermia is only going to get worse. People can drink too much water, not enough water. They can have fluid imbalances. Seizures. Not only that, but they're drinking alcohol as well. 
you know, if they're in a club, they're definitely drinking alcohol. Yeah, great point. Great point. So yeah, it, it, nobody in this trial is drinking, right? So we don't we don't have the good data, but you imagine the more substances on board, the higher the risk. Alcohol, cocaine, uh, cannabis, all these are kind of wild cards that can can lead to a lot more problems, even though this trial looked like it was safe in these specific conditions. And then people often just don't know what they're taking. You know, if you have a white powder or a tablet, um, there have actually been studies that look at the purity of these things. And um, people run into two problems. One is what they think is MDMA isn't even MDMA. It's methamphetamine. It's any number of other synthetic drugs. Um, or the dose of the drug is way more than they expect. It's two or three times more potent than uh, than they expect, which, as you can imagine, would, would lead to a lot of problems. Yeah. And I, I honestly, I think in today's age, we kind of do have that problem with our youth, you know? We have, we definitely have a problem, but uh, yeah. So in uh, in five years, you think the MDMA will be prescription only or just strictly under just the study research, you know, in South Carolina? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I think when change comes, it's going to be probably nationwide. Um. You know, you, you hear about ballot initiatives for like uh, sometimes for like psilocybin, some for cannabis, where it's like different counties, different states are legalizing recreational use or, or medicinal use of all these different substances. For MDMA, the most likely thing that's going to happen in the next fi five years is probably within the next two or three years um, that there's going to be, uh, you know, still another uh, phase three clinical trial, probably for MDMA uh, in treating PTSD. Um, that could lead to FDA approval. And there's actually already been a motion uh, approved by the FDA to, to fast track that approval process um, because of the promise of this treatment. So more than likely, maybe 2023, 2024, you're going to see this as an FDA approved medication. Um, it, then it would probably be rescheduled by the DEA. It would be kind of a least restricted, uh, uh, you know, maybe schedule two or schedule three substance rather than it's currently a schedule one substance without accepted medical use. Um, so once that happens, uh, the question is, okay, so it's it's legal, It's it can be prescribed, what happens now? More than likely, uh, this won't be something you can go to your pharmacy, fill, take home and use. It'll probably be dispensed in a specific clinical environment uh, along with at least supportive psychotherapy. Um, and then the question for there is kind of like, okay, how do we make it affordable, accessible? It'll need to be, you know, approved by insurance companies. We'll have to work on, you know, it, how to deliver it in a cost-effective and sustainable way. Um, but that that's all that's all down the road. In the next five years, I think it, it is, you know, likely that uh, this will be a prescription medication. So, uh, Dr. Oh, man, I've always wanted to ask this. Dr. Dobson, do you, not specifically MDMA, but other psychedelics, do you think they can uh, potentially unlock a person's mind and just, you see, you get new technology. You don't, you're not in this realm, you know, you just see stuff that is just not, oh, it's just not for the normal human being, uh, their brain to handle, you know, it's just too much. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's long been this question of like, yeah, creativity and psychedelics is there a connection? And um, I think Steve Jobs uh, was a big and the, the founder of Apple. Charles Darwin as well. I learned oh, that one from Joe Rogan. Yes, sir. Charles oh, okay. Darwin as well. 
Um, and even the Francis Crick, who was uh, kind of discovered the, the DNA uh, double helix, uh, it, the, there are a handful of kind of these scientific figures who said like, you know, I used LSD or I used mushrooms and I was able to think more creatively. Um, so great question. There actually are some trials um, that uh, basically study just that, you know, a dose of uh, psilocybin mushrooms given to either, you know, artists or scientists, and then they look at them, you know, the next few weeks and see like if they're having, uh, you know, more creative insights, things like that. And uh, they found that there was a signal for that. There is more creative thinking um, after uh, taking a psychedelic. Um, and then a lot of people are kind of looking more into like microdosing or taking very low doses on a more frequent basis. I think the jury's more still out on that. I don't think there's a lot of great data and, and even the stuff with uh, you know, these larger doses are um, really early, early data, but I mean, there's, there's reason to think there's, there's something to that. Oh yes, definitely. If you look into like a lot of ancient religions, hallucinogenics were around then, you know, the peace pipe, I don't think that was tobacco or marijuana to tell you the truth. You know, I, I'm, uh, I don't know, man, but yeah, like a lot of ancient religions, you say eat a psychedelic and just free your mind, you know, just learn the way the, the, the tribe, you know, the, the people, the history, you know, it's, it's deep. You know, I, I learned all this from the, I don't know if you're familiar with the, of course, you know, Joe Rogan, everyone knows Joe Rogan, you know, and what Joe Rogan likes to talk about all the time is DMT. You know, I just started listening and how you would describe how it just opens your mind. You know, you just, I think you will only operate a certain uh, percentage of your brain, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Joe Rogan, I, I, I would say I know of him. I don't think I've watched maybe a clip here and there, but I, I didn't do know he's a big fan of DMT, which um, is just an interesting topic all on its own. It's um, DMT is similar to the active ingredient in, in uh, magic mushrooms, but it's super short acting. It's like 30 minutes or even less. Um, so, you know, it's not something we've studied clinically before, uh, but it has been studied in humans, just, you know, you know, healthy humans without any sort of, you know, depression, anxiety, things like that, uh, back in the nineties. And, um, you know, it's, it brings up a really interesting point, you know, okay. So if psychedelic mushrooms are proven safe and effective for depression, well, they last six hours, LSD lasts more like 12. Can you get the same effect from a, you know, 30 minute session, uh, that would be a huge game changer. Um, and, and, and yeah, it, can it unlock your mind? There's getting to be more and more kind of like neuroimaging research to, to show, okay, what does that mean? Unlock your mind. What's actually going on in the brain. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting, really exciting time. I just feel like if you give the proper, you know, just the right person, they're going to unlock some new technology or some, some time traveling, you know, some real, like, like actual, like time, we have some time travelers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, uh, I, I think it's hard to know what we don't know in, in a way. Um, and certainly there's, there's people, uh, you know, throughout history, like you mentioned a few of them already who, you know, would swear by psychedelics. Um, it, there's some people that would maybe swear by it and, and, uh, uh, not actually have the, the, you know, the Apple level, Steve jobs, uh, uh, body of work to, to stand by it. So it's, um, 
Yeah, I, I think there's reason to believe that you know, in, in the right hands, uh, a, a lot could good, a lot of good could come from from psychedelics. Hey, Doctor Gornet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else can we add? Well, I was going to add a question. I was listening. It might have been a podcast. An author talking about the writing process, and I can't remember who the author was, but they they summed up writer's block as basically being fear. You know, it's the the book is inside someone's head, but the fear of putting it down on paper and not having it be good is writer's block. You know that that fear of getting started, fear of failure, and I wonder sometimes with social anxiety because that can be so common. You know, in people with social anxiety, if if agents you know, like MDMA um, might remove a bit of the anxiety and increase the trust just enough so that it can un unlock, as you said, Magnus, unlock skills and talents that are- in Unlock your full potential. Yeah. And uh, Dr. Gornet, I don't know if you know this, but my previous doctor to you was Dr. Dr. McLeod. You know, I, and I, I stated, I was like, doc, man, something's wrong. I didn't know I was, uh, you know, autistic at that time. I said, doc, man, I feel like there's potential to be unlocked in my brain, but I can't access it. You know, I've said this for years. I've said this for years. I think there's like a barrier just blocking information to my brain, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I didn't know if, 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 if Dr. Dobson, if you felt like that concept of re removing anxiety is a barrier to creative creativity or productivity sometimes um, is a concept that we see in the literature. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what you bring up Dr. Gwinnett, I think gels really well with like the neuroimaging research we have and, and how that um, matches up with what we see kind of clinically and subjectively. Um, one of the main ways that most of these psychedelics seem to work is uh, to disrupt something called the default mode network. Um, and so this is kind of the network in the brain, the, the different areas that are connected when you're not doing any specific task, you're, you're kind of wakeful, uh, alert, um, but you're not, you know, tasked with doing anything specifically. So what's your mind doing during those times? You uh, might be daydreaming, you're thinking about yourself, you're thinking about the past, the future, you might, you might be thinking about uh, what ha what'll happen if someone comes up to me and starts to talk with me, kind of social anxiety. Um, for sure with depression, this network is really overactive. Um, and so that's one of the ways we think psychedelics might work for depression is disrupting this network that is kind of this ruminative network that people can kind of get stuck in. Um, now the changes we see uh, when people kind of become more creative after using a psychedelic also seem to be tied to this default mode network, kind of breaking out of this rigid kind of ruminative uh, state. Um, so yeah, I, I think that uh, there is support for that in the literature. I don't, I don't know that neuroimaging has been done in these social anxiety trials specifically, but it seems to kind of, you know, phenotypically or, or kind of how it looks um, match that kind of rumination that you see with depression. That's really well said. It's exciting, you know? Um, and then I just also want to just make a quick comment that Everything we're talking about here, the research is being conducted by very serious you know, scientists and physicians under controlled situations where they're monitoring the dosage, how it's administrated. Um, and, you know, I think a cynic might say, oh, this is not about making patients trip out on drugs, you know, and hope for good results. This is a very intentional, calculated with, with safety as the highest priority, really, you know, and then 
uh, once the safety ranges have been established, then looking and trying to establish evidence that it can be helpful in a clinical setting. And, and I, I think it's exciting because in autism, we don't have biological treatments for autism, period. So there are no FDA approved uh, interventions, you know, from a biological standpoint, that's medications or other procedures that can be helpful for core symptoms. And um, I consider anxiety almost like a core symptom for autism. When you, Magnus, where it's like so common? It was, eh, yeah, it's, it sucks, honestly. You know, a normal pers- uh, person, you know, they'd be out, you know, like, uh, just chatting at the bar. Me, I, I'd rather be home, you know, just alone, you know, just chatting online. That's yeah. how, you know, it's just bad. Yeah. And then in, in your life, you've been really open about anxiety and trying to overcome that. And then, as I mentioned, every Thursday when we have our big meeting, you know, you, we all know it's there and we, we fight through it. Um, and this intervention that we're learning about today may be useful you know, for adults with autism and social anxiety. So it's really exciting that people are doing this work. And um, yeah, yeah. I would have to agree, Dr. Gwinnett, you know, as an adult now, you know, if there's something that can help me, you know, in life, I'm probably going to look into it, you know, because life is already, it's already hard as it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to give you a shout out, Magnus, because what you're doing today on this show is phenomenal. You know, you're sitting here talking about some really cool you know, literature, uh, scientific literature with a couple docs and you're holding your own. It's, it's great. So well done. Oh yeah, doc. I'm always improving, you know, always improving. Yeah. If you, if you look through our earlier, you know, productions, you could tell there's some quality control update updates, you know? Yeah. Um, that, uh, Magnus, Dr. Dobson listened to your blockbuster pod. Oh, what'd you think of it? Oh, it was, it was great. I, it brought, I, I was in my car. I, I listened to it and it was, brought back a lot of fond memories. I was, you were talking about the scent of Blockbuster and I, I couldn't quite place it, but I, I almost <laughs> wish there was like a, it, it in a bottle or something. So I could just be like, okay, yeah, that's it. Cause I'm sure my nose would recognize it, but it, yeah, brought back a lot of good memories. Yeah, man. Blockbuster, man. Uh, an, an ancient relic now, you know, it's an ancient relic, you know, nobody uses DVD VHS, but uh, everything is just bought on Amazon, you know, but the thing is, oh, they can they can take it away you know this is why i prefer physical copies of items you know easily any day now you know always have a physical copy you know yeah netflix now is posting on the at least my screen will say this goes off netflix may 31st you know because that's one of the things like oh my gosh <laughs> it's gone so yeah, the, yeah i think their last one was in alaska is what i heard at least yeah you know i bet you they're making money too i bet you you know people just want to just go in there just yeah, for old time's sake. Yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. Like it's like it's the, the Alamo, you know? Right. Yeah. The, yeah. The last one, the last one. Um, but, but yeah, no, a lot of, a lot of good memories that it's, uh, yeah, kind of, kind of, kind of makes you want to go to Alaska and visit that one. Yeah. Um, well, this has been so fun. Um, Dr. Dobson, if you don't mind, can you tell us about, how people can learn more about the South Carolina Psychedelic Science Group? Oh, wow. You know what, Dr. Gwinnett? You bring up an 
awesome point, which is I, I don't know that we even have an internet presence. I don't know if we, yeah. <laughs> if, oh I, man, that's, that's a problem, man. It's 2021. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this. I'll say this. If anyone's interested, they can always email me. Um, and, and my, uh, my email, uh, you can reach me at, uh, ericdobson.55 at, at gmail.com. Um, I think that'd be the best way uh, failing. Yeah, there's no Instagram, there's no nothing, but maybe, maybe that needs to change in the future. Yeah. That, well, thank you for sharing that. And um, yeah, I mentioned Magnus, I mentioned to Dr. Dobson, he's got a great voice, doesn't he Magnus? Yes, he does. Yeah. I think he was born to pod. So hopefully uh, we can have Dr. Dobson back on the show again soon, because this was really fun. Wasn't it Magnus? Oh, man, it was great, man. I felt like Joe Rogan for this podcast. You know, I've always wanted to ask these type of questions. You know, if Joe, hey, Joe, if you're listening, you know, hook me up, man. Seriously, hook, hook me up. At least are the group, you know. Uh, yeah, for sure. Come on, Joe. Show us some love, man. Um, at least retweet us when we put this out there. <laughs> so, all right, guys. Well, Magnus, do you want to um, take us out? And that is how we'll be, we will be ending the podcast today. You know, the very interesting podcast we had. Thank you and have a great day. All right. And thanks to Dr. Eric Dobson from MUSC Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. Dr. Dobson, we hope to see you again soon. All right. Thanks so much for having me. This, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you.